You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis. We have our second in-depth interview today featuring former Vice President of Creative and Executive Creative Director for Dollar Shave Club, Matt Knapp. Originally from Australia, Knapp has a detailed history in agency land both here and in the US before he moved client-side. He was one of the keynote speakers at Mumbrella 360 in 2019, but has now returned to Australia. He joins me now. Matt Knapp, arguably best known for your work as Vice President of Creative and Executive Creative Director at Dollar Shave Club. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks, Damien. Good to be here. Thank you for being here in the office as well. Uh, it's great to have you here, but that obviously means you're not in the US uh, working at Dollar Shave Club currently. That's right. So give us a, a bit of an update, Matt. Like, uh, what's going on? Um, yeah, mate, I have been back in Australia now for a little over a year. Um, decided to pull the pin and move home when COVID hit. Um, about three weeks uh, after we made that decision, we packed up our life and, and moved back. And yeah, arrived back in um, hotel quarantine in, in Brisbane uh, in, in April last year. So here I am a year later. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's good to be here. What, what made you make that decision to come back here? You have had a ultra successful career at Dollar Shave Club and before that as well. That's a that's a big call to make to, to come back. It, it is a big call and, and, and to be honest it is something that um, I kind of you know debated uh, for a while um, you know pulling the pin on you know the, the US and all of the opportunity that that the that country does provide but I think you know COVID was absolutely a motivating factor to come home uh, you know when when we made that decision the world was on kind of a knife's edge and no one really knew what was going to happen. And um, we knew that Australia was always going to be home. Uh, we had intentions of moving back uh, this year, actually, that was our, our intention. But COVID brought us home a year earlier. And um, to be honest with you, I, I couldn't be happier about the move. It's, it's awesome to be back. Um, one, one thing that, as I suppose, impressed me so much about how much is going on in Sydney, um, even even after COVID, uh, how many people are doing some really great things, amazing startup ecosystem that's happening here. Um, and that, for me, is, is, has been really inspiring and really um, interesting to sort of get uh, get my teeth into that sort of space and, and learn a little bit about uh, all the new countries, companies rather, that are popping up in, in Sydney. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a bit more about the Australian creative space a, a, a bit later on. I know you've got some good insights there. Uh, what are you doing in, in Sydney at the moment? So what's your plan? So uh, I'm still, uh, I've moved on from a full-time position at Dollar Shave Club. It, it didn't really make sense for me to continue to be uh, halfway across the other side of the world and, and attempt to continue leading the team. So um, I stepped aside from a full, full-time position there. Um, there was a, you know, another creative director who's been working there for a long time, ready to sort of step into my shoes. So it made sense for me, for me to move on. Um, but I, I am still contracting or consulting rather um, uh, on a part-time basis because you know the brand is obviously so important to me. I've, um, it's given me so much over the last six years. So I have a, have a deep love for that brand. So I, I, it's great to be still involved. But um, now I'm kind of, I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm enjoying a little bit more spare time. I'm doing a few kind of advisory um, positions with a few startups. I, one thing that I've, I've really enjoyed is being able to think about different problems. I spent six years um, in men's grooming, 
worrying about how to sell razors. And it's a, it's the same problem that kind of cropped up every time. So um, I'm really enjoying the uh, opportunity to, to kind of flex and do a few different things and meet new people in different spaces. And um, like I said, the, the startup system here, uh, ecosystem here is really impressive. There's some people doing some amazing things and I've had the opportunity um, to, to meet some great people and, and to, um, yeah, really get kind of uh, connected with, with what's happening here in that space. Yeah, that's a really good opportunity to go into my next question about that creativity in-house. We've been talking a bit about it this year in housing and, and the, the trends and how it's done and not just in the creative space. You obviously came and keynoted Mumbrella 360 a, a couple of years ago now and uh, some really great creative that was coming out of Dollar Shave Club at the time. Um, some very, uh, I guess boundary pushing stuff uh, as well and I know you can yeah you, you continued to do that after after the event as well but what was it like for you to move in house and to build up that creative team having come from agency land uh, DDB and anomaly I, I think the two main yeah, they were brands the previous agencies I was at um yeah I think I think the, the best part about being the being in house is um the kind of Lack of layers, I think, and, and especially sort of a company at Dollar Shave Club's uh, position or, or size. When I started, we were, you know, 70 people in a room. Um, and the it was a lot of people just trying to work work it out, right? There's there's no real playbook and every day is different. Um, and what I really enjoyed there, the creativity is obviously at the heart of that company. Um, you know, the, the founder uh, launched the company from a video um, that was a great piece of creative. It's an iconic piece of creative these days. Um, but the, the so creative creativity is at the heart of, of that company. So it's always been so respected. And what I enjoyed most about being in house is that you could have an idea and then the next day you're going to make it. Um, things just have uh, a faster time. You need to be scrappy. You need to be resourceful. And things happen quickly. And I really enjoyed that sort of fast paced atmosphere. How many people did you have working with you at, at Dollar Shave Club in that creative team? Yeah, so when I, I think I was the second creative hire, um, I partnered up with Alec Brownstein, who was the creative director there at the time. Um, so we were there was us two and I had a project manager when I started in 2015. Um, and then, you know, over time, I think our team grew to about 20. Um, and that had, you know, cre- creatives from, um, you know, a ju- junior sort of levels through to senior creatives, creative director. Um, project managers we had a production team so we had you know people guys who could shoot video and and photographs and 3d modeling and animation and uh, motion graphics uh, and a a producer as well on stuff so we kind of had a little sort of one-stop shop um, from the conceptual side of things all the way through to being able to to make the the ideas and I think that was the key of of having an in-house team I've you know I've had a lot of conversations with companies who are trying to build out the same type of thing uh, and I think the the key part is having people who can make the ideas. You can you, the c- concepts they come. You know, there's, there was always too many ideas at Dollar Shave Club and, and not enough time to do them. But if you have people on your team who can realize ideas, the production people that can, you know, turn a concept or a scribble on a page into something beautiful, or you know, thumb stopping as as the social media landscape demands these days, um, that that's the key. And it was it was awesome to have that sort of. Um, team that we were able to build up over time and um and and have some pretty good success yeah so 20 people to as you sort of said before and i know it's a lot more complex than this 
to sell razors. Right. Yeah. Um, well, we did a lot of we, we started razors, and in the end, we were all kind of men's grooming products. So yeah, there, there was a there was a lot more than that. <laughs> was it was it hard to keep that motivation and creativity sort of flowing within the team? Absolutely. I think I think one of the and th- and that's something that people always ask me. They're like, how can you work on the same the same problem day in day out? Um, I think we were really lucky in that we were often building um, new sort of what we would call, you know, sub-brands or, or categories within the male grooming space. So, you know, it started with razors and then we were doing hairstyling and then we were doing, um, you know, uh, shower stuff and then it was oral care and then it was, you know, hardware products. So it was like, you know, a scissors or a, a nail clip kit or whatever. That Anything that a guy used in a bathroom, we were trying to launch a product to, um, you know, give that consumer that product. So... Um, early on in the days of Dollar Shave Club, and I think you know whether this was the right move or not, we, we built what were called sub brands underneath the main kind of Dollar Shave Club brand, and you know we went through a lot of um, you know create creative kind of concepting and brand development to create these sub brands, and each sort of one had its own personality and its own tone of voice, and um, you know and we were creating you know assets and 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 work for each each of those sub brands so we were always sort of solving a slightly different problem and having a different brand tone to work to which um, I think was was great in the end we <laughs> went through a, a, a master rebrand as the brand went into uh, retail and everything fell back under the dollar shape club umbrella which again was another uh, interesting project um, you know going from the the DTC kind of darling that we were to then become um, you know, on the stores of Walmart and Target across the US was a was a was a huge project and a huge um, kind of uh, a challenge in itself and, and another really great rewarding one um, in terms of the things you get to learn. Yeah, just for those listening, DTC being direct to consumer, of course. But yep. um, one of the interesting things I I found about that was around churn rates and and keeping people uh, yep. within the the business. How did you find that? You know, was it more difficult to keep people within Dollar Shave Club and coming in every day, or did you tend to get poached quite regularly from agencies and things like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, I I remember one of our uh, head of HR actually, you know, called a meeting with me once, and he he wanted to know why our department had the best retention rate in the, in the in the company, um, and that was that was something one I didn't know. Um, you just kind of assume that because people did stick around for for quite a while. And I think that the reason is because there's always there's always a creative opportunity and, and creativity was held in such high regard. And I think we you you give everyone the opportunity um, in the department whether they they're writing emails primarily um, or doing like social creative, they always have an opportunity to touch the um, the work that is you know more high profile. And you know we used to always say that there's a there's a creative opportunity in everything like. We, we do an April Fool's Day post and we'd always say there's an amazing opportunity for for creativity and I think you just got to breed that culture within the team um, that people know that ideas can truly come from anywhere. That, that's something that people say a lot but don't necessarily um, foster but I, we, we definitely fostered that within our team and, and we really tried to give everyone um, a creative opportunity and, and um, yeah, foster those ideas and that talent because there was a lot of talent at the, at the company. Did you work with agencies a bit or different sort of uh, groups? No, so we never worked with a, with agencies. Um, the, we did work with big production companies when mm. it came to a, a doing a big campaign. So once a year we do a, a you know broadcast campaign. Um, 
that would be you know uh, you know big TV spots and stuff like that and like know, the John Lewis Christmas campaign or some sort of Super that Bowl kind of, exactly exactly so you know we'd always work with the with the best production companies whether it be MJZ or um, or Biscuit or, or Hungry Man or whoever it might have been over the years um, I think we worked with most of them um, but yeah that when it came to you know creating a, a kind of really big high profile campaign we would move outside of our in-house team um, who did more of the kind of everyday whether it be performance marketing stuff um, social media stuff or, or email stuff yeah did you do you think there would have been any value in, in working with an agency in terms of just thinking a bit differently maybe or, or... yeah I think I give you a good example was when we, um, we, we we did the rebrand essentially and we updated the aesthetic from um, what was the launch kind of um, the brand that everyone knew when we came out of the gate, which was a, you know, a cross razor logo. And I think, you know, that was created, you know, very quickly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure Mike never knew that the company would have the success it did when he launched it in his garage. Um, but we were pretty um, adamant that we needed some objectivity in that, in that particular project. We had a brand identity team in house, um, a very capable one at that, but I think um, you know we worked with Turner Duckworth, um, a you know, huge global um, branding agency, and, and they were amazing partners um, throughout the, the rebrand process because they did bring a lot of a lot of objectivity, and you, you do get um, you know uh, sort of in the weeds of your own brand, and um, there is a danger of you know talking to yourself or listening too much to your own um, the, the the walls or the conversations within the walls of the company. So yeah, definitely there is there are instances where that totally makes sense. Uh, we spoke about it before in terms of Dollar Shave Club did some pretty unique campaigns, pushed the boundaries uh, a fair bit, um, was very inclusive uh, as a brand, Absolutely. which some people would have gone, oh yeah, Dollar Shave Club raises, yep. like you said, a bit more than that. Uh, and it, going out to a community that was a lot bigger than that as well, mm-hmm. where did you draw those insights from to give you the leverage to do what you did? So it was... I think about two or three years ago that we were, we were, you know, coming out with another brand campaign and there was a lot of conversation around, you know, what should that be? Like, what would be our positioning? And um, we sort of realised that the, the answer to that um, sort of uh, that brief and also but more of a long-term brand positioning was sort of staring us in the face and it was these four, four words, welcome to the club. And that was something that we had uh, seen everywhere from... The, the, it, was a, it was a headline on the website for many years but we didn't I don't think people understood the power of that those four words Um, and when we were talking about doing a brand campaign and um, that we sort of landed on that platform and you know the inclusive nature of that and I think when it comes to grooming it's a a great kind of equalizer because everyone shaves somewhere Um, everyone showers you would hope Um, everyone wipes their butt so no matter sort of where you are or, or you know, where you're from or, or, or what sort of background you have, that's a, 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 an equalizer and a common denominator. So we thought that, that was a really powerful thing um, to, to land on that welcome to the club. And it's still something that you know, I hope that the brand continues to use for years. And it became also a, an internal kind of way to kind of broadcast your values. Like you started the company and welcome to the club. Like that is a, an internal kind of mantra as well. So it's a, it's a powerful... Um, thing and yeah absolutely an inclusive uh, rallying cry but you also sort of pushed the idea quite a long way as well in, in terms of the talent you were using for, for the campaigns of the specific demographics absolutely. you yeah. were you know approaching I th- yeah I think the um, you know one of the 
mistakes many marketers make, I think, is that they say something but don't necessarily follow through with it um, in, in everything. And I think that's why it was so important to ensure that all of the groups that um, sort of fit under you know the customers that we serve across America, and there are so many of them, 330 million people in America from all walks of life, it was important that they were all represented in the f- communications that we had. And I think that was the, you know, I, I cite the Get Ready um, film that we did that was, you know, a three minute um, long piece, which was, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a really long ad. <laughs> but um, we, I think we had 44, you know, principal actors in that. And it's always you know, feature film length. <laughs> it, it was a little bit. <laughs> um, and I, and, you know, we, we did cover off a lot of different groups, all, all different nationalities, um, gender identities, uh, you know, Every, everything that you can imagine and it was and it was very um, important to us that everyone was represented what did that do to the brand what uh, what sort of ROI did you see did you see more engagement with the brand after that yeah I think um, you know specifically I, you know a few a few specific examples the um, like for example the the LGBTQ uh, community were um, you know, huge fans and advocates of us because we featured um, you know a drag queen in our in our um, um, spot and you know and, and a gay couple and and these these sort of decisions I think people they just appreciate being able to see themselves in the ads as opposed to consistently looking at um, you know attractive models and I think that's what you know especially the grooming industry um, and and you know our competition has done over the years and people get very um, you know used to seeing that kind of imagery so I think it it can be um, refreshing to see um new uh like a, a more accurate representation of society i suppose yeah i mean think like, like you said before right thinking that mm-hmm. doing that two completely different things and, and we see a lot of brands and agencies getting kind of caught up in the thinking and not being able to execute or executing to something that they didn't quite think of it's lost a bit of the sparkle by the time it actually gets to consumers right how did you I guess get those ideas through. Was it difficult to get the ideas through, or, or quite easy? Um, I think it was easier. It got a little more challenging as the company grew. Um, I think you know, as when the when the company's smaller and the decision makers are few, um, as long as there was a good idea and people sort of trusted their gut, it was um, things you know made were made a lot um, easier. Easier. Um, whereas, you know, as a company grows, it's natural for, for more layers of management and things to happen. Um, and, you know, we're a, we became a Unilever company, um, which, you know, when the, you've got a huge company like that, um, things uh, it can be a little bit more tricky. But I think to their credit, they've been extremely supportive of, of our brand. They, they, you know, they bought it, invested in, in our brand because of who we were. And they weren't about to, to change um, the way we did things just because they were like sort of, the, you know, the big parent company. Umbrella has been, well, was bought a few years ago mm-hmm. by a, a big uh, American brand in diversified communications, which yep. has a, an outpost over here. Of course, you're sitting at it right now. <laughs> um same thing, you know, on a much bigger scale, uh, of course, with Dollar Shave Club being purchased by Unilever. Did that affect things for you, you know, uh, at any stage between when it happened and, you know, departing full-time, uh, the business? No, it didn't, to be honest. And I think there was a lot of fear that it would. Like, when when um, 
the the kind of acquisition was announced and and everyone was like oh well like the, the company's going to change now we're going to become a corporate sort of um you know boring uh, environment and to to Unilever's credit it didn't change like we um, I think that the biggest thing that happened with you know being bought by Unilever is going into retail and be, and you know uh, um, benefiting from the scale and the um, the size and the expertise that they have um, in that uh, part of the business. Um, and it was you know personally it was an extremely um, rewarding time because I got to learn a side of the business that I'd never you know thought thought of before. Um, you know how important the positioning on a shelf can be. Like you, you think about that stuff, but you don't really think about it. Um, and you know those sort of things. It's just it's, it's just another learning experience for me um, through throughout being a DSC. It's great. Uh, now you tried some pretty interesting strategies as well, um, and I hope I'm not digging up <laughs> too too many of the skeletons. I don't think there were that many, but obviously. Um, one of the bigger ones that came to light was the strategy around uh, spots on Pornhub. Yep. Uh, and you were quite front and centre of uh, yep. responding to, to that. I think even the BBC covered it uh, at one stage. It went quite far and wide. Uh, for those of you who are listening who want to know more about that, you can simply Google it. it, it it's all there. There's, <laughs> a, there's a lot of quotes and a lot of articles. Uh, a couple of questions uh, about that. Firstly, I guess the base question of... You're a creative and you were the one responding to the strategy questions. How involved were you in strategy as, as a creative? Very involved in the strategy um, stuff. We, we didn't actually have a... Uh, so if you think about a normal ad agency, there's a strategy department, there's a strategy team. We didn't have that at Dollar Shave Club. So we the creatives very much played a strategic role with the marketing team. Um, and you know, there was often, before you even get briefed, there was a you know, a stage where we would help write the strategy and we brainstorm the strategy. So, yeah, we were very involved. And would you have done anything different now that it's sort of settled and it was, you know, a few years ago now? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I still think that the, the, create, the choice of the um, channel based on um, the fact that we needed to look for different channels to reach our target uh, audience during a time when... Facebook was very saturated and the competition was, um, you know, very, very fierce there. Um, I, I still think that was a, it was a, it was a good idea to do that um, particular uh, thing. And I think our executions were, were, quite, were smart. They weren't, um, they, were, they were smart and they were clever. So uh, I don't personally don't think I would do anything different. Do you think it was more a fact that, hey, Unilever had purchased Dollar Shave Club at that stage? It was a bigger deal because it was now a Unilever yeah. brand yeah. than anything yeah. else. Yeah, I think you can you can get away with a little less when you're not a um, kind of a bushy-tailed startup. Now let's um let's have a chat about agency and mm-hmm. creativity and uh, some of your experiences as well. You've, you've moved back to Australia, of course. Yep. Um, with your experience now at Dollar Shave Club, you know. Is there an appetite to get back into agency land again now, or how do you see that? Um, I, you know, I'd never, never say never, definitely. But um, I think one of the things that I mentioned when we when we first jumped on is is the so one thing I loved about DSC was the startup vibe, right? It was this sort of like people in a room trying to work it out. Every day is different, um, and I think since getting back to Sydney, I 
you know, there was a this part of me that was like, oh, I'm going to be away from those opportunities. You know, being in LA, not too far from Silicon Valley, there's plenty of startups that are coming around, and they can and you know they can build a brand overnight and be a, a be an incredible um, sort of force in whatever industry they're in. And I was, you know, a, a little bit worried, I suppose, coming back to Australia, thinking you're going to be so far away from that. Um, but I couldn't have been more um, kind of uh, you know wrong. Um, because I think there's so many amazing companies here. Um, you know, you think of your likes of Atlassian and Canva, uh, you know, two to, to name a few, sorry, to name two, um, that have just had incredible success. And there's, you know, more and more, and I think there's more investment in the startup community. There's, I think, a reverse, um, you know, you talk about the talent drain, I think it's completely the reverse now. A lot of people are moving back because of COVID, and I think there's a lot of um, really, really smart, ambitious people, um, you know, looking to build the next Atlassian or Canva. Um, and, you know, that that has been sort of a, a really interesting um, kind of thing to get involved with since moving back. What do you see as the, the biggest challenges and opportunities uh, in the creative space at the moment, whether you're brand side or agency side? I think the the biggest challenge is the biggest opportunity, and that's just shrinking budgets. And I think that's that's across the board. And like you, you speak to anyone from a from an agency to production partners who are or directors, it's always the same thing. It's like budgets are shrinking, and I'm still being asked to do um, as much or if not more than I was before. And but for me, that is the opportunity. Um, and like I think you know, really true creative people, they see minefields. And to weave a path through those minefields to a really great creative outcome—that's creativity. Um, you know, when you've got a blank slate and a, you know millions of dollars, it's a little, it's a little easier to, to do it, right? Whereas if you don't have a lot of money, uh, creativity needs to find a way through. So I think, yeah, the, that's the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity. Yeah, I mean, like you say, the, the budgets uh, from many quarters are are shrinking, yeah. uh, and the time that agencies have to do Absolutely. projects are, are shrinking as well. Is that a uh, is that a bad thing for creativity, or does it mean that people have to think a bit differently, or do we have to, as an industry, argue a bit more for bigger budgets, more time, as a result, I guess, more uh, more ROI, a better ROI? Yeah, I think you know, in the in this world of um you know, brand sort of, uh, you know, measurability of a brand's impact is, um, it's always been a soft sort of thing, right? Whereas you've got, you know, your Facebooks and your click-through rates and all of the sort of digital um, performance metrics that people sort of seem to fuss over and, and really obsess over. And, you know, I'd, obviously we'd all love more money. We'd all love um, bigger budgets to, to, to do things. But um, ultimately, I don't think that's going, you know, to change. I think, you know, the democratization of creativity has done, as, as you know, everyone's able to create a beautiful picture on their phone or take a beautiful video. So it does demand more of creativity, um, whether that be, you know, finding ways to hack hack the media or you know get eyeballs on something, um, you know, ch- uh, mining channels that haven't been um, utilized very much like Pornhub um, there are there are opportunities out there so um, I think that's just where where creativity has its chance to always show how valuable it is and uh, are we providing the right environment for creatives to be able to do that um, I, I one, one thing I think is going to be a challenge is the is the work from home model um, with with the uh, being inspired creative creatively um, you know, one of the challenges of managing a team remotely is uh, having everyone working at home and 
you're looking at the same four walls every day, and so your stimulus is um, is res- is restricted, right? Like, and I think you know most creative people, they, they ideas come to them when they're least expected. It's when you're walking out, walking your dog, or getting a coffee, or you know whatever it might be it's like it's a piece of stimulus it's gone into your head somewhere and you've been inspired and then it creates an idea later down the track whenever you didn't necessarily expect it so i think one of the great challenges from work from home is that people need to change their environment change it up um be a bit more um deliberate in uh seeking out inspiration because uh i think it's going to be tough um to really think creatively if you're consistently sitting in your your home office looking at the same four walls do you think it's really possible to run a fully functioning creative team with a a flexible working environment to the extent that you know on any given day some people are working from home some are in the office and you know it's all a bit of a mishmash yeah i think everyone's just trying to work out the best way to do it at the moment it's such a um it's such a you know new thing to have you know, work from home as a as a you know normal part of your your week. Um, I think you know obviously the solution for, for me. I think the, the ideal solution is a hybrid model where it's um, you know it's a couple of days in the office and a, and a few from home. I think as long as people can find a way to get together in person um, regularly, whether that be every you know every once a week or once a month or whatever it is, um, I think that it can work. There, there are more and more remote opportunities out there now. I've you know had a few um, you know come come through LinkedIn where people are looking for remote creative directors and it, it is appealing to a degree but I do think there's there's something amazing about the in-person contact and how you know being in an office and how things can kind of come from nowhere ideas can just be shouted across a hallway um, and that sort of magic uh, you, t- you took it for granted when when you did it every day but I think when that's taken away from you and you're you're sort of on your own in your own office it can be a bit lonely and isolating, so I think it's you know technology can only take us so far. Obviously, with the with you know video chats and and all the different technologies that are coming out to service a work from home culture, but I do think that there needs to be in person um, contact. Yeah, you've come back to Australia, of course, in a really interesting time, not just because of a, a global pandemic and we've <laughs> shut our borders to to pretty much everyone, um, but the industry itself. Uh, locally is going through some significant change and we've seen some significant change uh, particularly in new agencies and Mm -hmm. and, and leaders moving around and and mergers and acquisitions it's it's been one of the or 2020 was uh, surprisingly I guess one of the busier years we've seen in terms of what was happening in the shape and construct of our industry Uh, obviously you've, you've just come back from the states which is a much bigger uh industry with a lot more players but what have you noticed on arrival back in in Australia? Was it what you expected? Um, it for, it's funny the the agency. Um, I've got a, you know a few friends who are still in agencies, and they um, and they, they 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 love their agency jobs. Like they're they're still working on really interesting interesting projects. So I don't from the, from an agency point of view, from what I've seen, um, you know, I haven't noticed that much difference. I just think that there are. Um, people are needing to adapt and they needed to, to create new, um, I suppose, models and stuff to, um, to you know, service the different sort of clients' um, needs that they have out there. Um, but I think there, there are definitely more people creating the in-house teams. I do think that's a, that's, a, that's a reality and that's not going anywhere. Does that work more or better for specific 
brands than, than others? I think it does. I think um, a, a small, like if you think about a startup, there's there's limited money in their in their early stages, so they need to find a way to you know efficiently spend that money. And to go to a, a big agency that not isn't necessarily um, the financially viable for them, that, and and to pe- be able to pay those types of fees. So I think whether it is a um, an internal model where you can bring someone in in house. Um, or, you know, there's another sort of thing that um, I'm sort of in the process of, and I'll use this as an opportunity to, to do a shameless plug, but um, <laughs> a, friend, a friend and I are, are, are sort of working on a new model where it's, um, you know, it's, it's providing early stage startups with brand uh, expertise, whether it be from branding, brand strategy and creativity um, in the early stages uh, for like a, a, a sweat equity model, essentially. So, you know, you understand that they can't afford the fees so it's like you know what we'll invest our time into an idea or a company that we believe is has a real lot of potential and um use that uh time to to, to help build the brand from the get-go because i think a lot of the time people don't have the money to invest in brand in an early stage of a startup and then they'll get to a point where they've spent a lot of their acquisition dollars they've acquired the sort of low-hanging fruit from a customer base and, but they haven't invested in brand. And then they're like, wow, we actually need to do that. And it's a sort of an afterthought, whereas we believe that if you start with a brand, um, it's a really uh, important part in building, in building into building the company. That's a really interesting point because we've seen a few more agencies or individuals going down that route. I, I guess the most prominent of which recently would have been Shadow Boxer and Conrad Spilver, who's done a, a you know, for some of his clients right. or some shadow boxes clients uh, a model like that mm-hmm. should we see more agencies look to equity as, as part of the the model of business i i don't see why that wouldn't be an, an option but you know obviously agencies are set up in a different way where they've got you know office space to pay for and you know overheads and stuff so it's it's difficult to justify a um you know an, an equity model where you're not getting paid up front and, and you know you've got bills to pay so you know it, it's it's not going to be for everyone but I do believe that the, the thing about creativity is that creativity can create value where there was no value before and and that's sort of the powerful thing about it and I think any um, you know uh, aspiring kind of startup or, or company knows the value of brands so I think that there is an opportunity to to really invest and, and if you and, and I think the, the, the one of the Problems, or not the problems, but uh, challenges with a, a client and agency model is that the, the, the best ones are the ones that are partners, right? And they're true partners. So you think about your Nikes and your Wyverns. They both like lifted each other at the same time. And I think once you're at a position in a position where you can truly invest um, for the benefit of both party, and it, and it, and they're the ones that work the best, as opposed to just being a um, a vendor that is just like, hey. I'm paying you do this and then like that, that's when it doesn't work and I think uh, and you know everyone aspires to have that those sort of mutual trust relationships where they they, they each trust each other um, but it's you know it's not always that easy to, to get there yeah that's a good point and I think a lot of agencies do it, it, it's the term that's almost thrown around way too widely is that you know we, we partner with our, our clients Realistically, though, like you sort of mentioned with the, the wider Nike example, very few actually attain that level 
um, of collaboration and, and that true right. partnership. But to take it back to the equity mm-hmm. space as well, surely that must mean you have to, uh, I guess, assess the opportunity Absolutely. a lot differently than what you would have initially. A hundred percent. I think that is that that becomes the the key, right? It becomes the, the it, picking those particular opportunities um, is so much more important because. You know, it's very much like a true venture capitalist, right? If a venture capitalist is investing in in, in in companies, their ability to, one, have access to the opportunity, but also just to pick the ones that are going to be right, and whether it be, you know, knowing the market, knowing a trend, seeing something before other people do, that's half the battle um, as well. So, yeah, it's, it's very much about um, picking, picking that sort of opportunity. And is this something you look to do uh, a bit more of uh, in, in the future as well? Yeah, I think uh, I, I definitely have a, um, I have a passion for working with... I, I really get excited about working with people at early stages of ideas. So ideas have always been something that, that just make me tick. They, they just excite me. They, they really are the reason that I got into advertising in the first place. And I think when you speak to early stage founders and early stage um, companies that they've got like huge ambition and that is exciting to hear those sort of um, ambitions and you talk about a brand that doesn't exist yet to have an opportunity to help shape that to help shape a strategy that could be long lasting um, I find that really interesting and really rewarding so that's the sort of stuff that I'm um, yeah, getting excited with uh, with the Sydney or Australian startup community and having having a um, having a role there. Yeah, tell me a bit more about the the, the startup community. We always used to say, "Oh, Surrey Hills is the new Silicon Valley yeah. of Australia," and you know whatever other nonsense that was being <laughs> sprouted at the time. Um, so let's move beyond the cliched stuff. But you know, what is our startup community like in not just Sydney, but you know, I'm assuming a lot of the other capital cities in particular have some, you know, maybe good opportunities for yep. startups. But you know, you've come, like you said, from just down the road from mm. Silicon Valley. Yep. Um, how does it compare? Um, I think it's like you, you think about some of the companies that are doing really well in Australia like Koala has done extremely well um, a few other uh, so Eucalyptus who have done um, Pilot and so they all have Kim. to be associated with Koala yeah, they're, they're, all, they're all Australian yeah. so. <laughs> no um, like they're just some of the ones that I'm sort of more intimately involved with but they um, you know they, they're, they're seeing a need in in, in the the um, the market here to um, and that they're going out and, and, and they're satisfying and I think with there's been a, a, a real I suppose thought that Australia being so far away and, and the size of the market is a limiting for for creating um, or starting a company here but I think especially some of the tech focused ones you know Atlassian and Canva are, are great examples that you know why can't those companies start here and stay here and be extremely successful like people are that there's a, there's a real kind of you know, global community of people here. Um, and I think that's sort of, yeah, it's evident. Uh, and just to sort of finish up, Matt, um, the Australian creative space, we used to uh, sort of be quite proud of the fact that we yeah. were this outpost of... Punch of, above our weight. Punch you know. above our weight. The outpost of creativity in New Zealand came along yeah. and said they were pretty good <laughs> as well and, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh, are, we still, are we still seen as that from overseas uh, and do you believe we still are that 
I I definitely think that we are. Um, you know, you 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 hear the amount of times I've been in meetings and someone's like, oh, it's an Australian accent, you know, like they, they, they must know what they're talking about. <laughs> you have that sort of like, you cut through the, the, the meeting noise and, you know, Australians I think have a real way of being um, direct and, and I think, you know, obviously a very endearing way, but um, whereas Americans can, you know, talk around in circles sometimes. <laughs> but um, I think Australians are, are very good at um, being kind of matter of fact with the way that they... Um, they conduct, you know, themselves, and I think that that's evident in the way we do our creative as well. I think it's um, it's very direct. It's 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 sarcastic. It's self-deprecating. It's all of the things that make Australians um, likable overseas. And I think that that as that continues to be reflective in in our kind of work and, and the brands and the and the companies that that are created here, I think we're we're going to continue to be um, you know highly regarded in that way. And just to round up, we've, we've seen a lot of high-profile industry people move back from either Europe or, or the US, um, some for jobs, some because of COVID, various reasons. Uh, what should we expect to see or hear from you over the, the coming months? Uh, is there anything we should be looking out for in, in terms of MatNap doing different things? Um yeah, I think, you know, I haven't, you know, formally launched this sort of model that I'm talking about, but I think over the next couple of months that, that will, um, you know, see a bit more uh, shape to it, I think, and that can be something that will be, be formalised. There's some really exciting um, startups that um, that I'm working with, uh, along with my founding colleague who I can't reveal his identity at the moment, but um, I look forward to being able to do that. Soon. I'll bombard you with emails every day uh, just I'm trying to sure, guess. I'm sure you will. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's th- that's what I'm most excited about. I'm, I'm excited about getting getting in with some really um, exciting uh, startups here that uh, I think are going to redefine and disrupt some industries that really need disrupting um, uh, here. So that's what the next sort of six months holds and it's um, it's a really exciting time to be back in, in Sydney and Australia. It's good to have you back in Australia, Matt Knapp. Thank you for being on the Mumbrella Cast. No, no, thank you very much, mate. Good to chat. That was former Dollar Shave Club Vice President of Creative and Executive Creative Director, Matt Knapp. If you missed the first of our regular in-depth Mumbrella Cast interviews, which are set to drop on Tuesday each week, check back on your favourite podcast platform for Tim Burrow's chat with Gold FM's Christian O'Connell. And listen out on Thursday for the regular Mumbrella cast. I'm Damien Francis. Thanks for listening.